0: I would ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. It's good to be with the early risers this morning, and I'd ask you to stand out of respect for God's Word as we look at verses 13 to 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3, and I will read that to us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and it's a passage that points us to our hope. It's a a hope that's a strong hope, and it's a hope that strengthens us to serve God, even when serving God leads us into suffering. As I thought about that this week, I was reminded of uh, something that happened to Missy in my life. Shortly after we moved to Turkey, we heard about a, a kind of a single older female missionary who had been captured by a group of Islamic terrorists in another country in Central Asia, not too far from us. But we heard about this situation. It was a very hard situation. The, that missionary sending agency went to every length possible to try to get her back. They tried negotiating with the terrorists. They were unwilling to do that. The United States government even got involved. There was a rescue attempt that was made to try to get this missionary back, but ultimately it was to no avail and tragically, this missionary was killed for the faith, and her body was never recovered. You know, we learned more about her story as time went by. We learned that she'd actually been a part of missions for a number of years, serving on kind of the administrative side of the mission sending agency that she was a part of. But God had just kind of moved in her heart over time and given her increased burden for Muslims and a desire to share the gospel with them, and in time, she needed to go, and so she did. She went out herself as a missionary, even though she knew that she was going to a very dangerous country. Now, why would an older, single, female missionary put herself in harm's way in order to share Christ with the lost? There are a lot of answers. I'm sure she could have given to that, but one of the reasons was that she had a great confidence in God. She had a great confidence that God was with her wherever she went. She had a great confidence that God would be with her even if walking in the path of obedience meant that she would experience suffering. Our passage for study this morning really helps us to think about suffering, this issue of suffering in the Christian life. How are we to think about the fact that we will suffer as we follow Jesus. It's a, it's a beautiful passage because it teaches us that we never have to be afraid of suffering. It's a beautiful passage because it reminds us that God is with us in the midst of our suffering, and it's, a, it's an incredibly helpful passage for our church because it teaches us that we need to be ready to give a, a confident, a bold, but a respectful defense for the hope that is in us through Jesus Christ. We're going to see this morning that those who suffer for righteousness' sake are blessed. Blessed in God's eyes and blessed for all eternity. So this is a a beautiful, hopeful, helpful passage. So we're continuing our study in 1 Peter last week. We looked at verses 8 to 12. We thought about what relationships in the church are supposed to look like. And many of us who've been in the church for some time, we've seen uh, times where relationships in the church have not looked like the things that we studied, like unity, sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. But by God's grace, you know, he, he kind of puts before us these, these virtues as goals for us to pursue, things for us to run after by his grace. And then we see that as his word spread and permeates in the hearts of his people by his spirit, we begin to see these kind of virtues exemplified in the life of a church, something that we should pursue as a church, unity, sympathy, love, compassion, humility. And we were also reminded that Christians are never to retaliate So, we never get to hit back. We never get to yell back or shout back at others. Instead, we're supposed to bless our enemies. We're supposed to look for opportunities to do good to them. In other words, we've got to live just kind of 180 uh, degrees away from the way everyone else in the world lives. And as we do so, we'll be glorifying God. Well, now, this morning, we're turning to the theme of suffering. We're reminded here that Christians will suffer. It doesn't matter what false teachers on television tell us. God's will at times in the life of his sons and daughters in this life is that we will face suffering. Peter knew that he was writing to a group of believers who were suffering, and indeed the the intensity of the suffering they were experiencing was ratcheting up. So at this point, they were facing slander and accusations. They were being maligned and mocked for following Jesus, but the time was soon to come when they would experience even more intense and difficult forms of suffering. So how were they, as Christians, to think about their suffering, and how were they to respond to their suffering? Peter begins to address those issues this morning, but really, as you read through the rest of 1 Peter, that's going to be kind of the dominant theme that we're going to be studying as we look at the rest of this book. How do Christians think about suffering? How do Christians experience it? How should they respond to the suffering that God brings into their lives? I love this passage because it declares the confidence that we can have in God in the face of our suffering. And something we'll say over and over, I trust during the sermon, but we are not to trust in ourselves or have confidence in ourselves. No, we are to have great confidence in God. And as we do so, we will find that He is enough. As we study this passage, we're going to learn four truths together in the time that we have. Four truths from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13-17, to 17. The first truth is that Christians can confidently hope in God's protection. We'll see that in verse 13. The second truth is that Christians who are persecuted are blessed despite their suffering. We'll see that in the first part of verse 14. The third truth we'll see is that Christians should be bold and respectful as they defend the faith. We'll see that in the second part of verse 14 to verse 16. And the fourth truth is that Christians should be willing to suffer if that is God's will. And we'll see that when we look at verse 17. Let's look at that first truth together this morning. Christians can confidently hope in God's protection. Take your copy of God's Word. Look at verse 13 with me. Here's what Peter says. He says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Now, remember with me something of the context of what we're talking about. Look at verse 9. And here you see in verse 9 that Peter had encouraged these believers not to retaliate, not to strike back, not to fight back against their enemies. Why? Because... God would bless them for their obedience. And then in verses 10 to 12, he quotes from Psalm 34, 12 to 16, and he makes a point that God's eyes, that is the very favor of God, rest upon the righteous to do them good. And now look what he says in verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? You see, God is in the context here. God's power, God's favors in the context. So who's going to harm you if you're devoted to what is good? Some people have looked at this verse, and they say that what Peter is teaching us here is that it's a generally true principle that those who do righteous things, they generally are not attacked by those in authority. They're not harmed by those in authority. They don't get in a lot of trouble, and I think, generally speaking, that that is true, but I do not think that that's what Peter is primarily addressing here. I think he is talking about the reality that God whose eyes are upon the righteous, will protect his children from all, listen, ultimate harm. Who can harm us if God is for us? Who can be against us if God is for us, as we read in Psalm 56 earlier this morning? Now, what do I mean? I do not mean, as we've been saying, that God will not permit his children to suffer harm, because he will. So you think about it, in the life of godly King Josiah in the Old Testament. What happened to him? He was killed by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho. And Paul and Peter, who wrote this letter, what happened to them? Well, they were martyred by Nero during those Roman persecutions. The 15th century reformer John Huss preached the gospel boldly, and yet he was burned at the stake. And then this older single female missionary that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon this morning, well, she was murdered by Islamic terrorists, and her body was never recovered. So I do not mean that God will not allow his children to suffer harm in this life because that has been happening ever since Cain murdered Abel. You know as we read about in Romans 8, we are like sheep for the slaughter. That's what God says about us. Instead when I say that God will not allow ultimate harm to come to those who are devoted to him, to those who are devoted to what is good, to those who are following him, it means this, most especially, listen, God will never lose one of his children he'll never lose one. In other words, we are eternally protected. So we may face physical harm. We may suffer emotional abuse at the hands of others. We may even be burned, but God will never allow ultimate harm to come to us. Why? Because God is sovereign and strong and good, and he keeps us. The Bible teaches that when we die, we will be with him forever. To be apart from the body is to be present with The Lord and the Bible teaches that a great resurrection morning is coming when we will stand before God and we will be given new resurrection bodies and we will live with him forever. Brothers and sisters, we can be confident in the protection of God. I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. It speaks about the confidence that Christians can have in God's protection. Here's the first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I love that. Not a hair can fall from our head apart from the will of our sovereign God. What should that do in our lives? It should make us ready to live for him. Great confidence we can have in the protection of God. A second truth, Christians who are persecuted are blessed despite their suffering. Look at the first part of verse 14. Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Now, again, remember the context. What's going on In the life of these believers, persecution is ramping up. They're beginning to be slandered for following Jesus. These are kind of the days just before Nero's great persecution, which is going to break out, most especially in Rome, but then it's going to spread in time to other parts of the empire. And some of the people to whom Peter is writing, they were already experiencing these forms of suffering, but of course not everyone was experiencing suffering yet and the intense physical suffering that was going to come later during subsequent Roman persecutions hadn't begun, that's why Peter says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness there at the beginning. He's saying, hey, this is possible, but it's not certain. This is possible, but some of you haven't experienced it yet. In other words, what is the context that he's talking to? It was interesting. Nelson used the exact same phrase that I was thinking about. There were storm clouds gathering in... Peter's day, in the day when he's writing this letter. Brothers and sisters, there are storm clouds gathering, it seems, in our own day. But then look at what Peter says. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. What does that word blessed mean? It really means happy. Uh, It means prosperous. It speaks of someone who is fortunate. It talks about someone who is to be congratulated because of his or her situation in life. Now, we've seen that word blessed used in different contexts. We've seen it in social media. I think a few years back, it was very popular to say, you know, hashtag so blessed. And then you would have a picture of a smiling husband and wife, and there would be beautiful children, and there would be this perfectly clean home. and, And you know, those things are blessings. They really are. And yet Peter's using that word blessed in a completely different context, isn't he? He's using that word blessed in a context of people who are experiencing suffering and persecution for following Jesus. The, The world would look at that and think that you're cursed. God looks at that and says you're blessed, that you're happy, that you're prosperous, that you should be congratulated because of the circumstances of your life. Again, Christianity turns the world upside down. Now, why would Peter teach these believers that if they're persecuted, they're blessed? Where did he get this teaching from? Well, he got it from the Lord Jesus, didn't he? Think about what the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why are those who suffer for righteousness blessed? Well, they're blessed because they're keeping company with the godly saints who've come before. You know, they're blessed because they're heirs of heaven. It's certain. brother. Just think about it for a minute. When your life is done, you'll see the king in his beauty. You're an heir of heaven. And then Jesus says, when you're persecuted, listen, your reward is great. And God works on a big scale as it relates to greatness. Brothers and sisters, we may be called to bear the cross on our backs in this life, but we will wear the crown of glory forever on our heads. That's what we're promised. That's why we're blessed. If we believe this, it will strengthen us to endure persecution. Right? Keeping this before our eyes will strengthen us to endure persecution. I think of John Bunyan. Many of you know his story, but here's a, a faithful Baptist preacher, the you know, 1600s, and it becomes illegal to preach the gospel unless you are a part of the Anglican State Church. And Bunyan is unwilling to give up preaching the gospel because he's called to it by God and not by man. And so he continues to preach, and he's hauled before the judges, and the judges, they throw him in jail. And they throw him in jail for 12 years. And all he had to do to get out of jail was to say, okay, I won't preach. Now consider that he had a wife and children, and think one of his daughters was blind, and his wife would have to go and would have to beg food in order to keep the family alive. What would enable him to endure that kind of persecution for so long. Well, part of it is these promises. It's the promises of God. Trusted by faith that those who suffer for righteousness are blessed. Christians, even when we're persecuted, we are blessed despite our suffering. Yeah. There's a third truth. Christians should be bold and respectful as they defend the faith. Look at the second part of verse 14 to 16. Peter says, Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. So here in these verses, Peter is encouraging these believers with how they are to uh, respond to the challenges that they are facing because they're following Jesus. And what's the main instruction that he gives them? What's the main thing he says kind of in that paragraph? It's be ready at any time to give a defense for the hope that is in you. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be ready. The idea is that we're to be prepared. And he says that we're to give a defense. And what that word means. It's actually the Greek word that gives us the English word apology or apologetics, and it talks about a reason, defense. And what Peter is saying is that we should be able to give a defense for our faith in Christ. We should be able to give reasons for why we believe what we believe. This does not mean, listen, that every Christian has to be an apologist. I think sometimes we get confused about that. And we feel like we can't say anything to anyone because we can't say everything. Well, brothers and sisters, no one in this room can say everything. But what we are called to do is we are called to faithfully and clearly be able to tell other people why we believe that Christianity is true. Why we believe the Bible is true, why we believe Jesus is who he is, why the gospel is the best possible news that anyone could ever hear and receive, we must be prepared to defend the faith. But notice that that Peter isn't only interested that we defend the faith. Did you notice that he's also interested in how we defend the faith? The way that we're supposed to do it, he he says that we're to be bold and respectful. So you see that we're supposed to be bold as we defend the faith. Look at the The second part of verse 14 to the first part of verse 15 again. He says, do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Now, he's actually quoting the Old Testament here. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. And in Isaiah chapter 8 verses 12 and 13, here's what the prophet says to the king of Judah and the people of Judah. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Now, the context is important because what was going on in the life of Judah when Isaiah gives this word? Well, what was going on is there was this massive superpower called Assyria, and Assyria was threatening to invade the nation of Judah and to destroy it and to utterly destroy it. And King Ahaz, who was a wicked man, was afraid, and the people of Judah, they were afraid but notice what God says to them. He says they're they're not to be afraid. Instead, they're supposed to trust in the Lord. They're supposed to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. In other words, only the Lord is worthy of worship. That's right. Only the Lord is worthy of fear. So don't fear these other people. Don't fear your opponents. Fear the Lord. And that is a good word that we need, and that's a good word that the readers of 1 Peter needed, and that's why Peter quotes this verse in Isaiah, to teach them and us to be bold as we give a reason, as we give a defense for the faith. The people of Judah were to be bold as they faced their enemies, in the same way we are to be bold as we answer those that would oppose us or challenge us, those that were hostile towards faith in Jesus. We're not supposed to be terrified. It's a word that talks of being shaken, trembling before others. Instead, we're to, give a, we're to give a confident answer. And I think it's important for us to think about. Why could these first century readers of 1 Peter, why could they have boldness and confidence as they defended the faith? You know, was it because they were so learned? Were they trained theologians? Were they apologists? No, they were just common men and women, much like you and like me, Many of them actually probably couldn't read. Was it because they were so rich and powerful? No. Actually, the Bible indicates that many of those who followed Jesus in the first century were quite poor. So why could they be bold? Well, the passage in Isaiah tells us, you know, we can be bold, brothers and sisters, because the Lord of armies is on our side. We can be bold because we don't have to trust in ourselves. We can be bold because we can trust in God. God was with Judah in Isaiah's day. God is with us in our day. So you must understand the key to boldness is not to look within and to try to find resources that will help us be enough because, brothers and sisters, we're not enough. There will always be a question we can't answer. There will always be a challenge that's too strong for us, too intimidating for us. The key to boldness is to trust in God and to regard Christ the Lord as holy. Why? Because only He is worthy of fear and praise and worship and reverence. And listen, He's with us. We Completely change the way we take on the trials of each day. If we could, by God's grace, at the back of our mind, keep this reality. God is with me in this. God is with me in this right now. There's a boldness we're called to have in defending the faith. It reminds me of Martin Luther in 1521. He's summoned to the Diet of Worms before Charles V, the great Holy Roman Emperor, had all authority, basically, in much of Europe. And they called him in there, and they said, Martin, you must recant of all of your teaching. And he said, which one? And they said, all of them. And everyone in the room expected Martin Luther to be burned at the stake, just like John Huss. And it was intimidating. And for a time, Luther was shaken. But you know what? He didn't crumble. He didn't recant. The next day, he came forward and he uttered these words. He says, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. Brothers and sisters, how can he, facing death, be so bold? Listen to what he said next. God help me. Amen. Why could he be bold? Because he was trusting in God to help him. And he knew that God was for him. And by God's grace, that will be true of us as well as we confidently give a defense for the reason for the hope that is in us in Christ. But notice we're not only called to be bold, are we also called to be respectful? Uh, Look at verse 16. Peter writes, yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. The the word gentleness there, it really speaks of meekness. Uh, It speaks of humility. The word respect, it indicates kind of there's this reverence of God in your life that causes you to interact with others appropriately, rightly, because you want to be pleasing to God in every way. Peter was teaching these early Christians, and he's teaching us this morning, that the way to respond to our opponents is not hitting back with force when they hit us, but it's to be respectful. It's not to be rude. It's not to shout. It's not to be condescending as if we know anything other than by the grace of God. Instead, it is to be respectful. We're to keep a clear conscience. In other words, we're to live a godly life before others. So the way we speak is to be godly. The way we live is to be godly. Why? Because we live under the watchful eye of God. And also for this reason, because when we are accused of being evildoers by our opponents, people will be able to look at our lives and they'll be able to see that the accusation doesn't line up with the reality. And you see our opponents, their purposes will be thwarted because Christ will be honored by the way that we live. And in this way, our opponents will be put to shame. I do think this is an important word for Christians as we live in America in 2021, that we should be respectful. We do need to understand that times are changing rapidly. We are entering into a post-Christian culture. Christianity is less understood, and it is less popular than it was just two decades ago Increasingly, people think of the Bible's teaching on sexuality as hate-filled and bigoted. This is particularly true on college campuses, but it's becoming more and more true in middle schools and high schools and in the government and in the military and in workplaces as well. So how are we supposed to respond if we are attacked for following Jesus and for standing on what the Bible teaches about these issues of gender and sexuality. And listen, everything else the Bible says. How are we to respond? Well, he tells us here. We're to respond respectfully, which means we don't get to shout back. It means we don't get to attack back. It means we don't get to be sarcastic with others. Instead, we're to live holy lives. And we're to live lives that are marked by love. And as we studied last week, instead of retaliating, we're supposed to give a blessing, which means we're supposed to love even our enemies, even as we, as best we can, explain why we believe that Christianity is good and beautiful and true. And it is. It's all of those things. So we do this, we'll counteract act one of the great lies of our day that we've talked about from time to time. And the lie is, and this is what we all face, the general belief is that if you disagree with me, you hate me. If you disagree with me, you hate me. But no, we have to be the kind of people that can respond to others in a way that demonstrates it. Actually, no, we don't hate you. We just disagree with you, and we love you. And by God's grace, we're going to love you in a way that you don't understand. It won't make sense with your worldview. And maybe by God's grace, we'll put, little, we'll put a little rift in that worldview, and you'll start having a category for the fact that people can actually disagree with you and love you. And that actually sometimes you need people to disagree with you because maybe what you're believing isn't true. Uh, We have an opportunity to make friendships with people who disagree with us. I think particularly the LGBTQ community. right? We need to to, uh, have relationships with them through which we can share the gospel with them so they understand their need for Christ so that they would turn to him. And we need to love them so that they understand that actually we don't hate them, but we do believe that homosexual activity is a sin. And we believe that their never-dying soul is in danger because they're taking God's good gift and they're twisting it. Well, there's so much more we could say. Let me make just one application before we move on. Christians should study apologetics, but we should trust in the gospel. Well, Peter's talking about giving a defense here. He's talking about giving a a reason to everyone who asks for the hope that is in us in Christ. And apologetics is something that can help us with this. What is apologetics? Well, it's a a reasoned defense of the faith. Apologists will use the Bible, and they'll use reason, and they'll use the truth of history in order to explain clearly and winsomely why the, the tenets, why the truths of Christianity are just that, that they're true. And so it can be quite helpful to explain to others what we believe and to do so in an organized, rational way. It's incredibly helpful, but some Christians go wrong at this point. They love to study apologetics, and they love to have apologetic conversations with non-Christians, but they forget, listen, that apologetics has never saved anyone. What do I mean by that? I mean this, people are not saved because they believe the Bible is true. How do I know that? Satan knows the Bible is true. People aren't saved because they believe Jesus is God. Satan knows that Jesus is God. People aren't saved because they realize that Christianity is both internally consistent and also lines up perfectly with what we experience in terms of reality in the world around us. Now, all of those things are important. It's incredibly important for people to understand that the Bible is true, that Jesus is God, and that Christianity is both internally and externally consistent. They need to understand those things because those things prepare them to be saved. It prepares them to hear something, a message, a message that will save them. But in and of themselves, they don't save people. No. So we should study apologetics, but we shouldn't trust in apologetics. We should use apologetics But we should not stop with apologetics. Instead, sometimes the best defense is a good offense, and the weapon we've been given is the word of God, and most especially, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the power of God unto salvation? Romans 1, verse 16, what is it? It's the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. When we speak forth Christ into other people's lives, God takes that message, which seems like foolishness to the world, and he pierces hearts. And he calls spiritually dead people to life and he gives them faith in Christ and he draws them to themselves and they trust in him. The message that we must trust in is the gospel. It's this message that teaches us that God created us because he loved us. And he wanted to have a relationship with us that would be marked by deep love and intimacy and by obedience. But our first parents, they rejected God. They sinned against him. They decided it be better to live for themselves and to live for him. We send in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature, that same sinful nature that teaches us that we should live for ourselves and kind of put ourselves at the center of our lives, and we should reject God and His ways, and instead we should pursue me and myself and I. And all of us have done this. All of us have acted as if we are kings and not God. And that's the hardest sin. And sin is serious because it brings us under the judgment of God. And God is holy, friends, and we're not holy. And so there's no way we can be good enough for Him. Instead, if we were to stand before God still in our sins, we would face His judgment. We would face His wrath forever and ever. But there's good news. And this is the thing that when we're sharing about the hope we have, the hope we have is most especially this gospel hope. And here's the gospel, the good news. God has done for us what we cannot do. He sent the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, always obeying the will of his Father. And then when the moment was right, he laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners bearing in Himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in Him. He died, but then listen, He rose from the dead, changing all of history and changing millions upon millions upon millions of people who were far from God and has brought them now into the very family of God. How? In this way. All who turn from their sins, repenting of their sins, and put their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, They have Jesus as their Savior, and all their sins are forgiven. And Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, is counted into their account. It's like God looks at them as if they lived Jesus's perfect life. And friend, that's the message we have for you this morning. That's the message you need to hear and receive if you would be saved, if you'd be forgiven for your sins, if you'd be reconciled to God. Christ's fellowship, this is the message we must proclaim as a church if we want to see others saved and brought into a relationship with God so that they might be made new. You see, apologetics has its place. It helps us defend the faith. It prepares people to hear the gospel, but we can't trust in that. By God's grace, we need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's the simple message that saves. So you look at verse 14 to 16. You see, we should be bold and respectful. More briefly now, Christians must be willing to suffer if that is God's will. Look at verse 17. Peter says, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This verse is pretty straightforward. Uh, In light of eternity, in light of the coming judgment of God, it's better to suffer for doing good than it is to suffer for doing evil. Why? Because you see, those who suffer for doing good, they only suffer for a little while. Their enemies may have the upper hand for a time, but it's a limited time, and the day is coming when they will be completely free from all pain and suffering, and they will only ever know the endless glory of God. Again, they'll see the king and his beauty forever and ever and ever. But to suffer for evil is a terrible thing. Why? Because it's endless suffering. Those who will spend their entire lives ignoring God, wanting nothing to do with God, will not have God forever and ever and ever. In fact, all they will know, listen, it's so important that you understand, all they will know from God for all eternity is wrath and judgment, and it's endless. And I think that's the most horrible thought imaginable. Day after day, year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, on and on, endless eternity, there is no hope. Far better to suffer for doing good. Oh, friend, far better to trust in Christ that you would not suffer for doing evil. But as we conclude the sermon this morning, I want to leave you with one observation. Notice again that God is sovereign over the suffering of His people. Did you notice that there? Peter says, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Now, he's saying that Christians only face suffering if it's God's will, that they would experience that. And we know from the Bible that God only permits us to suffering if it is for our ultimate good and for His glory. John Bunyan, who we mentioned early in the sermon, he understood the sovereignty of God and suffering. Listen to what he wrote. He says, It's not what our enemies want, nor what they are resolved upon, but what God wants and what God appoints that shall be done. No enemy can bring suffering upon a man when the will of God is otherwise. And no man can save himself out of their hands when God will deliver him up for his glory. We shall or shall not suffer based on God's will alone. Oh, Christ's Fellowship, what a wonderful confidence we can have that God is sovereign. He's not a little God. The arm that's stretched out the galaxies is not limited in any way. And He knows and He cares. And so anything that enters into our lives has been passed through, sifted through His good and loving hands. And it's intentional. And by faith we can receive that, and by faith we can endure that, and by faith we can trust Him, and as we trust Him, we will be blessed. So looking at this passage this morning, we've learned that we can have great confidence even in the face of suffering because our God will protect us in the midst of suffering, and despite our suffering, we will be blessed. And so we can boldly and respectfully defend the faith. Why? Because we will only suffer if it's God's will, and we will only suffer for God's time. And then for endless days, we will see him face to face. There's no greater hope than that. So may God strengthen us to trust his word this week. And let's pray.